0: Eric Veal with the AppsJack Capable Communities podcast, and I am coming to you from Seattle, Washington, which is home of Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Boeing, and an incredible startup ecosystem that rivals Silicon Valley. Each episode, I bring on friends and guests who are executives and business leaders from the local community and around the world to talk about a topic that we find very interesting. Please enjoy this episode. Hey everybody, this is Eric Veal with the AppsChat Capable Communities Podcast, and today we're going to be talking about developing and managing human capital. Uh, I feel very lucky, today in the studio I've got six guests, uh, the most guests we've ever had. Uh, we just uh, pre-funked a little bit, not, uh, not any drinking or anything, but we had, uh, had some lunch, and that was good. Got to know each other a little bit, but uh, we're excited to launch into it, but I'm going to let each of the guests introduce themselves briefly, and uh, first I have Steve Kubacki.
1: Hi, I'm uh, Steve Kabacki. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm in the process of developing two apps. Uh, One uh, is a guided meditation app uh, that focuses on a mind-body healing, and then uh, another app on dating.
2: Oh, hi. My name is Andrea Cremese. I'm a software engineer at Smartsheet, which is a SaaS business based here in Bellevue. I recently conducted a body of research for my MBA dissertation uh, looking into motivation and psychological contract for software engineers here
3: in the area in the Pacific Northwest. This is Joe Oconic. I'm a business development and strategy consultant. I've got over 30 years of general management experience uh, domestically and internationally, and have helped with uh, over 12 startup businesses.
4: Hi, my name is Afta Faruqi, and I'm the president of Inabia Software and Consulting. We provide solution and telecom architecture work, and you can find me on my LinkedIn, Afta Faruqi.
5: Hi, my name is Lee Carter. I am a uh, IT consulting and professional services um, executive. I've been working in the industry for about 12 years now, and uh, that staffing is a major component of what we do, so that's one of the reasons Eric has asked me to
6: join. And I'm Rachel Alexandria. I'm a leadership and power guide. My background was as a clinical psychotherapist, and I have a specialty in conflict management and resolution. You can find me at rachelalexandria.com.
0: So welcome, everybody. Uh, It's great to have everybody here. And uh, as I mentioned, so this episode is going to be about developing and managing human capital. Uh, What we'd like to talk about now is basically uh, organizational health or organizations' health and what, how would we know or what would the measurements uh, that are made be? And, and uh, does anybody have stories about healthy or unhealthy organizations? I think for starters in particular, let's talk about the healthiest organizations and, and what those look like and act like. Oh dear, they wanted to start with, with the unhealthy ones. So let's talk about sick organizations. Let's talk about um, the worst place you've worked and why.
5: Yeah, so uh, everybody started looking at me there. Um, Yeah, the point that I was going to make is, you know, an an organization doesn't necessarily start out as sick. It can devolve into sickness. I I once worked for an organization that had had a fantastic leader. And as the success of the organization grew, so did the ego of the leader. And that ended up, in the end, crumbling the organization, Um, and, and it's no longer
0: extant. So individuals and kind of heroism can be an issue if all of the pride and so forth is in a singular individual that can create risk and problems.
5: Yeah, hubris. Hubris. More than pride.
0: Ego. You know, it wasn't
5: taking pride in the organization. It was the hubris of, look at what I've done. Look at what I've built. Me. And not necessarily taking into account that it was built with a large team of people that worked yeah. very hard to get it where it was.
0: Right, right, right. So Some more I, not less we.
6: So here's a theory. Are organizations only as healthy as the leader?
0: I think probably, but I guess I guess they are. It's a terrifying prospect.
1: Yeah. Um I would say it depends on how the organization is set up. If you have one leader who owns everything, let's say he's you know, he or she is owns everything, then um, yeah, the culture is definitely gonna take on that aspect of a leader. If you have something where let's say it's a, maybe a company where the employees own everything, so there actually is no, you know, they might have a CEO, but basically the employees own everything. There I think you have a very much different situation. Uh, so I think some of it has to do with ownership. You know, who owns what, uh, who owns how much. Uh, and and I think the more they own, uh, whoever is at the top, uh, then the more the, the, the business takes on the... Uh, the culture takes on the personality characteristics of of the person who owns.
6: Well, it's something interesting because I I do some work called uh, systemic constellations that looks at, and I know this is going to be a a fuzzy topic here, the energy of a system. So even, I, I mean, I think I agree with you that when people are given that leeway to take further ownership of their particular jobs and they're encouraged in that way, then that's great. But how many organizations do we know with extremely unhealthy leaders Who even allow that? Um, And I also think whoever's in charge, they they send, for lack of a better explanation, vibrations. You know, like the people who work below them, they they kind of feel how that person is and how it is to behave with them, and that trickles down. You know, that I think the person holding the container of the organization, or the person or people, that's what determines the health of the organization at large.
4: So as Steve said, it's true if the person, the CEO owns most of the company, the environment may be better, but it's true and not true at the same time, because when the person owns things, he thinks he's the smartest person on earth, and instead of doing the right thing, he so many think he does the wrong thing, which employees are not happy with that. On the other hand, my own company, we have a very open culture, and um, everyone has a voice, even though uh, like HR, who has nothing to do with the operation, but whenever any crisis comes or something we need some advice, we all sit down together and try to resolve the issue. Even though again, like operation issue, HR can come and say, that, give their idea, and then of course I have to take decision. But I listen to everyone, and that's was the I think the environment is very healthy in the company.
6: Well, it sounds like you're a healthy leader. That helps.
3: So, um, interesting pr- a couple interesting perspectives i had the have had the opportunity to work for publicly held companies privately held companies and family owned companies who held the majority of shares in a publicly held company Um, And I want to share just a couple of stories about things in terms of the impact of culture and leadership that that I had uh, my hand in. And one was starting with a company from the Czech Republic called Eurotel in the 1990s, a cellular telephone company, which was a monopoly. And we knew that competition was going to be coming. There'd be a a second license. The Germans would most likely get it. And uh, we felt that how are we going to compete? We're going to compete on better customer service and focus on the customer. Um, We set everything up around that, got the board to allow us to start implementing customer loyalty when we were a monopoly, okay? As a monopoly, customer loyalty programs. We actually started lowering price when we were still a monopoly. And um, I left the company in 1996. Um, It was held then joint-owned by what is now Verizon and U.S. West and the Czech government. You know, the ownership stayed that way. It eventually went private. Three or four more competitors came in between 1996 and, like, 2004. Um, With all that competition, that company maintained its focus on customer service, maintained its number one market share position, which no other monopoly in the world has ever done, until guess who bought it? Telefonica bought it. And they began to manage it like a phone company, you know, profit, profit, profit. So the culture stayed there after the leadership left for well over twenty years, is because everybody who owned it and participated said that's the mindset and culture. So that that's kind of one story. The other story is inside of a family-owned and managed business, uh, a conglomerate in the Far East. Uh, they had over a hundred uh, different companies. They made an investment in telecom at the time that uh, five other. Companies were all getting licenses. It was a hyper-competitive situation. Hundreds of thousands of people on waiting lists to get in. And um, over five years, we'd built that into a billion-dollar business, did an IPO, um, you know, implemented many of the same things in terms of culture and training and development, et cetera. Um, and within two years of my departure, um, as the leader, and I'm not saying I did this, but the culture that we built, because the next set of leadership was so focused on profit, they cut training. They cut R&D. They cut all the systems that we had in place for uh, uh, HR processes on process, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And we had gone through layoffs. We had done all kinds of things. And very quickly, leadership at the top changes. And if there's not a push from the second layer of management, and that layer of management was not willing to push back up uh, when there was a change of leadership, so it's not just the person at the top, it's it's really that second level of, of, of leadership that I think in corporations will drive for a sick or healthy culture, from my experience.
2: So do you think that the second layer can actually combat... To, to me, I, I held and I've seen in my experience that given a long enough time horizon, the Uh, organization will reflect the leaders so do you think that that second level actually could potentially quote-unquote combat
3: that what happened was that when the new person came in um, that after a year or two they kind of got fractured and people who didn't like the new leadership approach they started leaving and you know, over the years, probably 80% of those second-tier people left. The ones who stayed were the ones who were more compliant, didn't want to lose their job, didn't want to take the risk, et cetera. Um, and and if, they had, if they had all bound together and say, no, no, this is what we believe in, I believe that they could have forced that next leader out. I've seen that happen too. So can the size of an organization
5: actually help insulate against poor leadership? Does it, does it run rampant within a smaller organization? Or can can a large organization where the leadership has to trickle down? D- oh,
0: oh, I think sorry, it's more I'm visible. No, you're okay. Different. I think it's more visible in an, or palpable, perhaps in a small organization. It seems uh, place I work. You know, three you know thousands of people work there. Uh, the management team is very visible. You know who the CEO is, and you know who you know you, you know who the 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 executive leadership is for the most part. Um, but you don't probably know them fantastically. Whereas if you were a, you know, working at a small mom and pa, you're ultimately going to probably know the people. And I think that you feel those things a lot more deeply and each of the personalities have a lot bigger impact on your perception of what's going on. What, what other thoughts do we have about, so we're, the topic here is organizations health and basically how we know if it's healthy or not. We talked about the importance of the leader. We talked about the importance of the management team going down. Obviously, the people and and tolerance, I think, to that point, uh, like we said about risk or just behaviors that are and are not tolerated or encouraged and how um, incentives work for that, both good and bad, sticks and carrots for good behavior, bad behavior. What other principles or practices can we think of about good organizations?
1: Uh, I'd like to think about one way approaching this is thinking about what you know, what would be the ideal organization? Um, you know, obviously we'd have great communication, high productivity, innovation, efficiency, all these things. And how, how would such an organization look? And, and, and you know, if you're going to have communication, high accountability and responsibility, you're probably going to base this on some form of meritocracy. Everything based on merit. And if we had a company that was based purely on merit, then we probably wouldn't have owners, <laughs> or it'd be a way to get rid of owners, or we'd have a be able the way to get rid of people who were dysfunctional at higher levels of management or middle management. If everything was really based on meritocracy, uh, and I think we're you know there's a possibility we may be moving in that direction. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of like and this may be carrying things a little little kind of off. But, you know, when we get to Mars, you know, what is Mars going to look like in terms of our economy? Um, and, and I think, you know, Mars is going to be high tech. Uh, I mean, there's probably going to be no ownership for people living on Mars. Uh, everything is going to be free. And it's probably going to be based purely on meritocracy.
6: So here's the problem with meritocracy as as the only way of establishing that kind of um, health that when we were talking in the last episode about um, psychopaths, um, people with you know chronic personality disorders, narcissistic personality disorder, they do rise in meritocracy because they get results, because they know how to manipulate people, because they know how to make sales. So pure meritocracy actually doesn't address that issue, unfortunately, unless you have people at the very top who are making these determinations and who can see... Sort of the carnage in the aftermath of people who were doing that, and then they assess that as the whole rounded picture.
1: I, I would completely agree. I mean, the carnage actually is going to lead to less productivity, less efficiency, less innovation. Yeah, they may,
6: it takes a you lot know, of storm. vision to see that, though. Yeah,
1: but they may be able to storm their way or push their way, you know, to to something, you know, that's uh, that works and and is profitable, but people like that usually create a lot of problems around them and their company ends up working less efficiency with less productivity and with less innovation in the long run.
6: So how do we how do we help people comprehend that? I think most of the problems that we have as humanity is our lack of ability to have foresight, to see like the long-term impact of actions. We we get so focused, I mean we see this in like the top richest people. It's all about more money, more money, more money. And they don't even think about the impact, like, where's my company going to go if I'm the head of Exxon? Eventually, we're going to run out of oil. I mean, do they just think, well, I don't care because I'm going to die, but what about my kids when there's no more product, literally? So even those people don't have that kind of longer-term vision to think about. You know, when you were the person running the Pony Express and you see railroads coming in, how do you adapt instead of just continue pushing, pushing, pushing forward.
0: I, I, th- I think there's a lens, um, not answering the question, but just t- t- along these same lines, I, th- I think there's a lens where you could look at it as feedback systems, and there could be fantastical tools that we don't currently have today that allow employees to provide maybe anonymous feedback about individuals within an organization in a fair way, And that feedback uh, actually winds up getting back to that individual in a way that they can digest it and act on it, and it becomes of their, it becomes a part of their own personal improvement plan or something.
6: It Still takes a lot of health in the people receiving that feedback. And, 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 and I think and that you can
0: build in those skills and capabilities. That would be my argument: is that you could, you could still, too, build in those capabilities to make sure that as the feedback is given, it's understood and interpreted, and and so forth. There's a very yeah, high-profile yes. person in this
5: country right now who's using Twitter to yes. provide that <laughs> feedback, <laughs> <laughs> and it's not working terribly well.
2: Well, it's. Yeah. The, the feedback he gets on that is not fantastic. I think there's the he limitation does. of hundred and forty characters that really gets to us. But I think going back going back to perfect meritocracy, that will I mean that will work if we assume that we get perfect information. And given a long enough timeline, we can get perfect information, but given a long enough timeline, we're probably not gonna be a going concern anymore. So I think what Eric was referring to as the three sixty degrees reviews are actually quite helpful. Or at least when I had them. I don't think that's my theory. Helpful. It's
0: more like a hypothesis of a tool that's perfect that can manage and control an organization on behalf of the organization with its people or something. It's some IT vision that I don't fully understand. So I want to bring this back a little focus
3: back to you know how do you measure the health of the organization? And we started with the premise is it is it the top person, the second tier, where is it? And uh, you know my experience, and again from perspective of working in different cultures where the languages are different as well. it it really came back to a definition of communications that was, I attribute to a guy by the name of Joe D. Batten, who is a management consultant who started out in the early 60s. But his definition of communications is shared meaning and shared understanding. Okay, And, and the importance of that I can't put enough weight on that. And it hits you in the face when you're working in, in, a, in a, a a third culture that's not your home culture and you're interviewing people and you're trying to hire someone and someone comes up to you and say, hey, Joe, uh, recognize that just because they can talk to you in English doesn't mean that they're the right person to hire because you could have a very good conversation with a four-year-old back in the United States and you wouldn't hire them. Okay? I think so you don't- have to
6: add the component. The third component missing is shared caring. Like, oh, we're being, I'm coming yeah. back to empathy oh, yeah. here.
3: Yeah, but, yeah, caring, yeah, caring is part, of my, my definition was of communications, but I think for organizations, caring is, is is absolutely element there. But I think that this, you know, wherever we are, and especially people say, oh, Jill, that's interesting because you're talking about a third language. No, I'm talking about the language of engineers, the language of HR people, the language of salespeople. You know, we all say, hey, we're going to do this, and all the heads are going north and south, and nobody has a clue, you know, um, you know uh, what's going on right now, you know. We're, you know, we're going to do a bespoke product management development. What's the latest term for product? I mean, they, they change all the time, and nobody knows what they mean. And so organizations fail at the most fundamental level around communications. And and one last point, and I'll stop and listen, I promise, is that uh, whether it's an organization of, of 30 people, 300, 3,000, 30,000, every executive, at the C- every CEO is not going to manage any more than 10 to 12 Direct reports. Okay? And looking at the health of the relationships there is very important. Then also looking at the health of the executives' relationships outside the work environment. And I've said this many times as I interview people and I've got techniques that I use. I say, okay, you know, the tiger doesn't check the stripes when they walk through the front door of your office. So if they've been divorced three times, Does that tell you about their ability to manage relationships? And I have nothing against divorced people. But I'm saying, you know, if they can't, you know, look look at how they manage their personal life, and it's going to tell you a whole lot about how they might manage relationships, on the
1: job. Uh, I would really be, uh, I'd like to keep those separate. I don't want my company knowing about my personal life uh, so much. But no, 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 But I mean, I I think that's a real, that's kind of a slippery slope. But I, I wanted actually for you to comment on the military because I think that's an organization where you really have, that's based purely as much as I can tell on meritocracy. I mean, nobody goes in the military to make money. You know, it's it's serving, as you've talked about before. Uh, and, yeah, there's I mean, there's politics and there's some other stuff going on. But it really is an organization based on meritocracy and accountability. Am I correct with that? Or? Uh,
3: yes, and, and, and our, our host here as well, who has experience in other branches of the service, said it, it's very clear. I mean, there's a clear vision. Defend and protect the Constitution of the United States, so help me God. And then whether you go from the Coast Guard to the Navy to the Air Force to the Army to the Marine Corps, each of them has a unique assignment below that you know, of how they're gonna do it and all the way down. And, and as we were talking on the break, um, this is where servant leadership is actually taught from the ground up. You know, as soon as you go to be a squad leader and are now responsible for four other people in your squad, you know, all the way up to you know, being a general, you put yourself last. I mean, you go to the end of the line. You don't eat before the people are taken care of. You know, you just learn this as part of being dipped in that culture of, you know, we're going to take care of each other uh, no matter what.
6: And that's what uh, Simon Sinek's book's about, Leaders Eat Last. Like, he actually delves into that and, and describes why that's so successful.
3: So, so as an example, when I, as a CEO, when I was a CEO, you know, when we'd have events and people would see me shake every single person's hand to every single event be the last person to, you know, sit down, you know, you, you, you know, you, you lead by example, you, you got to walk the talk. And it's one thing to have it written up on the wall or in the employee card that they carry around and say, well, what are the values you, you, you test the health of an organization. And I'll, I tell this when I go into organizations in transformation, I said, if in two years I can't walk around this organization and have people say, in your own words, tell me the values of this organization. And the, the value should be no more than three or four. In your own words, what's our vision? You know, what's your department's target for this year? What's the company's goal and measurement? If you can't just walk around and ask people without them you know, open up you know, their, their notebook or their laptop or looking for their card, and, and you know, if they don't know that, the healthy organization is you know terminal
5: and leadership absolutely has to personify that. you're right, so it's nice to hear that you did that because there are entirely too many organizations where they don't so
4: but uh, the, the example for military maybe is different I see it very differently because uh military is not like you said not for making money, and plus their leadership is go to the lower level too, so they uh, but uh, so they're. Uh, goals are very different than the other organization. Organization, the private organization, they wanted to make money, right? So their their goals are different. Their measurement are different. Tactics are different. So they, they do everything differently how to you know, take company, move forward to make more money, not only you know, just to keep just one draw line and just follow this line for the rest of the life there. You know, the, of their.
1: You know the, the military has led the way in all kinds. I mean, like racial integration. I mean, when you look at the military, the military has kind of been, at least the United States military, has kind of been on the cutting edge of cultural change and and I, I think it's possible that you know maybe maybe we need to move corporations and businesses to be more like the military. I don't mean kind of hierarchical and authoritarian either, but one that's really based on meritocracy. I, I think it's ah it's something we should consider.
4: Because uh, the military have only one goal, how to protect. When the organization have so, so many goals, you know, how to make money, how to save jobs, how to save themselves, you know how to run. If, if the business goes down, I mean, they will be, the owner will be jobless too.
0: Aftab, to I think as a question, I, I think my opinion is that is that there might be some perhaps abstract pattern or set of uh, properties and components of an organization, whether it's a military and its health, or it's a business and its health. I think that there's enough overlap there in terms of people interacting toward a common goal and purpose. That's I think the discussion here, I I agree 100% that when the mission's different, when the vision's different, when the value's different, when the there's all kinds of variants that exist. But the question is more, I think, a leadership one of how can we, or again, uh, envisioning the perfect organization, we can borrow practices from seemingly totally different cultures and, and implement them. So we'll, we'll pause on that. Uh, this was a conversation about uh, organizational health and how to measure it. And we'll be right back with another topic, uh, that we'll discuss about developing and managing human capital.
2: If you want to hear more about uh, thoughts on technology, uh, in general about coding, or if you want to hear more about smartsheet.com, which is the software as a service company where I just started working and for which I honestly love working for, you can reach me at andreacremese.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-A-C-R-E-M-E-S-E.com. You can write in Italian too.
1: You've been listening to the AppsJack podcast. The creator and host of this podcast is Eric Veal. It was recorded, engineered, and produced by Christian Harris. You can contact us and find all our show notes on our website at appsjack.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. If you like what you hear on this podcast, let us know by writing us a very nice five-star review on iTunes and subscribing. You can also find out more by going to appsjack.com slash meetup to get more information on this month's topic in the corresponding meetup group that Eric hosts in Bellevue, Washington each month. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month for our next episode of Abstract Podcast. This has been a SeaTown Media production. Find out more at
6: ctownmedia.com, seatownmedia.com, hyphen townmedia.com.